0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
1: From Virginia Humanities,
2: this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman.
1: I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Ed Ayers.
2: Okay, so Nathan, Ed, I want to introduce you to a historical character who I'm particularly fond of. I'll look forward to meeting him or her. He's a little quirky, but really interesting. Picture this it's Washington, D.C., it's 1802. A man named William Plumer has just been elected to the Senate from New Hampshire, so the Capitol is his base. Now, imagine Plumer is a guy. He's kind of tall, he's kind of thin, he's not really a flashy dresser. In that sense, he's kind of New Englandish. Mm-hmm. So Plumer moves to the Capitol at a time of pretty intense political divisions. Mm -hmm. His party, the Federalist, had just been booted out of power by Thomas Jefferson's Republican Party. So I guess not everything has changed in Washington since 1802, huh? No, definitely (laughs) not. So he arrives in Washington, and he's grouchy. He already feels like he's an outsider, and everything that he loves might be crashing to ruin. So early in his term... Plumer is wandering around the halls of the Capitol, and he stumbles across a lumber room and peeks inside. I'm sorry, a lumber room? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I a have lumber one of those.
1: room.
0: And I actually have one of those in my house. No, Don't we all have lumber rooms? <laughs>
2: so, so it's a kind of storage room. Right. And he peeks into this lumber room or storage room or whatever you want to call it, and what does he see? Documents. He sees manuscripts. He sees papers, uh. and they're all over the place. We know this because he writes about this in his diary. The documents, principally, lay on the floor without any order, covered and mixed with dirt, plaster, and rubbish. So Plumer is horrified. The water
0: in every rain that falls runs through the roof and wets these papers. They will soon be destroyed. They are trodden underfoot by workmen. The quantity of water on the papers, the dirt and filth in the chamber
2: has rendered it unhealthy.
1: These are the original documents?
2: These are original documents you know it's not the formal journal of the house and the formal journal of the senate which are kept by a clerk it is drafts of things probably copies of reports or notes of proceedings
0: the stuff that we would like as historians basically the day to day exactly
2: yeah. exactly the stuff that has all the nifty detail and the crossings out and and yeah. all of these documents that clearly have something to do with the working of congress but nobody cared about them and they had been thrown in this room and forgotten
0: Wow, so that'd be like finding John F. Kennedy's memos in a leaky closet or something.
2: Exactly. And Plumer has an epiphany. He decides that he's going to make it his mission to preserve these kinds of working documents, to collect the history of the government, to keep all of these things that are disintegrating and vanishing and somehow become the guy who pulls them all together and hangs on to them for the future. Wow. He is obsessed. He collects papers from the lumber room. He goes to the library and copies things. He asks congressmen to give him things. Apparently, every day for two hours, he would do his research to collect documents. And and when after a while, um, Republicans got a little suspicious about what this federalist was doing, rummaging around in papers. So he began to memorize things and copy them down at night so that he could have a full record of Congress from 1774 all the way up to the early 19th century that he's writing about.
0: That must have been a lot of paper.
2: It was a lot of paper. <laughs> he, he ends up with an archive of 500 bound volumes. Wow. But he also then begins to record what he sees and what he hears. You know, he, he writes down all of these amazing things that we wouldn't have otherwise, that we wouldn't know otherwise. Like what, Joanne? So, for example, um, he happens to note down on a piece of paper that the clock in the Senate is set a half hour fast on purpose— so that the Senate can end every day in time for the senators to get to the horse races on time. They don't want to miss the horse races. And then he says, I actually think that's for the better because the less the Senate can do, the better it is for the country. (laughs) We would never know that otherwise. He talks about, he takes notes on what he sees when he's invited to go and have formal dinners with President Thomas Jefferson. He talks about how Jefferson would very strategically set his table with these little props, like stagecraft, scattered around the table so that Hopefully the conversation would veer towards what he wants it to veer towards. So there would be like a vial of water from the Mississippi River or um, a piece of what was known at the time as the mammoth cheese, which was this massive (laughs) 1,200-pound cheese given to jefferson I see tribute. You come
0: up <laughs> made of mammoth milk presumably right? and then yeah. poof
2: they're talking about lewis and clark you know or well this cheese you know this cheese was given to me by appreciative farmers you're you're in the room at this dinner party sort of watching the operation of politics in a way you might not otherwise have
0: and he's keeping all of this in his own personal collection
2: He's got stuff in trunks. He has massive amounts of stuff based on his time in the Senate. And then also, after he's out of the Senate, he continues on with this kind of behavior for 50 years.
1: So, Plumer is an interesting guy. Did all his hard work end up making a difference?
2: Ed, you're asking me, so what? <laughs> well, kind is that what of, you're but doing? I thought that I
1: used more words.
2: Okay, here's the so what he's collecting things, he's collecting not the formal journal of the House or the formal journal of the Senate, which record what's voted on and who voted for what. He's collecting all the behind the scenes working. He's recording Mm. the working of the institution and all the sorts of things that might not be seen as important, but that actually show you the process of governance. He clearly feels that the history of Congress and the history of early America is just vanishing before his eyes mm. I think at one point he says it's fleeting down the current of time to oblivion and wow. someone has to rescue it he uses the word rescue because it really is a feel for the time, the look of the time, the, the, the sort of ground level reality of what's going on is, is part of what Plumer leaves behind Okay, so I'm going to get down to breast tacks here I'm a historian of the early republic, so to me, William Plumer is really an unsung hero. He helped preserve a fuller and more accurate image of early American history for future generations, history that really wouldn't be available otherwise.
0: So today we're bringing you a show about people like William Plumer. These aren't ivory tower historians like your backstory hosts. They're ordinary citizens, people who collect and catalog the minutiae of daily life around them, Things that might not be around centuries or even decades later. All of us, not just historians, depend on these folks to understand the past.
1: We'll explore the power of historical artifacts, and we'll hear about the types of things that backstory listeners collect and say. We'll also talk to someone who's trying to archive the internet.
2: Plumer was a pretty unusual character in early America. With the nation still young, charging into the future, and cities modernizing at a rapid pace, most Americans didn't think too much about the nation's past. They focused on its future. For more on this, I turn to someone who studies it.
3: My name is Seth Kotler, and I teach history at Willamette University.
2: Kotler says if a 19th century American visited a Revolutionary War battlefield, they would probably just encounter apathetic farmers.
3: People would come by curious about these places and would ask people about them and say, oh, yeah, I guess something happened here. I don't know. Maybe it was over there. <laughs> ask, ask Bob. I think his farm is, is where they were fighting or something.
2: Even some of our most revered historical sites were in danger of being flattened.
3: Independence Hall, I think at one point they were considering just tearing it down because it was in the way, you know, of new modern construction.
2: Why? I mean, it's hard to imagine these places being really taken for granted in that way. So what do you attribute that to? Yeah, um,
3: hmm. Uh, I don't know. Do you have (laughs) theories about this? I mean...
2: uh, Well, I I mean, mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, maybe it really is that, you know, it it isn't the founding yet to them, right? It's just that stuff that just happened.
3: Right, and it doesn't, and, what, and the nation itself doesn't feel monumental and grandiose yet. Perhaps that's it—that it's like a junior varsity country.
2: But that started to change by the 1820s. That's when Americans realized that objects and people from the 18th century were starting to disappear.
3: And then, when Adams and Jefferson die on the same day of July 4th, 1826. Uh, 50 years to the day after the the Declaration of Independence, um, it leads again to this sense of the passing of this generation who bequeathed to us this nation in which we now live.
2: Americans started snapping up biographies of George Washington and other political figures as part of this new appreciation for the past. These biographies were mostly written by elite men of property who knew the founding fathers. But less famous people began collecting stories from the past, too. They called themselves antiquarians. Was it the age of antiquarians? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is indeed the age of antiquarians. Now, Cotler told me about one of the first antiquarians, a Philadelphia bank clerk named John Fanning Watson.
3: In his 30s or 40s, probably, in the late 18-teens or early 1820s, he just became obsessed with what he called ancient Philadelphia and the olden times and started collecting <laughs> information in his spare time. And apparently, he also did some of this on his work time as well, which made the manager at his bank not very happy <laughs> with him. Uh, and, well, and one of his. Well,
2: and like what? What was he doing during work? He was probably
3: looking over old books and taking notes on them, or gosh, I don't know. He certainly wasn't browsing the internet.
2: Much of the best information on ancient Philadelphia, which, by the way, was pretty much the 18th century, was preserved in family letters stashed away in trunks. So in the hope of saving some of that stuff, John Fanning Watson started walking around the city, knocking on the doors of prominent Philadelphians.
3: And he would just go knock on the door and say, hey, did you know that your house was... A hundred years old. Uh, and and by his account, if we can trust him, uh, people would be really excited about this and would want to know more and would start asking him questions. Um, so I think he sort of felt, felt himself like he was sort of the Pied Piper of the olden days. You know, he tried to go around and get other people excited. He also liked to go around interviewing people, uh, old people. Uh, he basically deputized a bunch of other people who, hey, if you run into someone in their 80s or 90s, uh, the, the list that I found had like 30 questions on it and involved things like, uh, tell me about Blackbeard and what you know about Blackbeard. Uh, tell me about <laughs> natural hair and the first time you ever saw natural hair, which I assume that means men without wigs, not wearing wigs. Uh, He asked about carriages uh, to tell them about carriages. Uh, He asked them whether or not young people stayed out as late back in the days as they do now, whether people had porches on their houses or not. It was very much the stuff of what we today would call cultural history um, or social Mm. history, right? He, He wanted to know about the texture of daily life in the city of Philadelphia in the late 18th century you know 30 or 40 years in the past with this sense that it was just really different like what it looked and smelled and felt like just w- was really different than what it is now
2: but but so he's giving these lists seemingly to his friends to ask old people so it's it's not even just you know a historian might say oh I want to understand what this period was like but this this is bigger than that right he's collecting on a on a much wider scale, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And, and and
3: there really is a sense that he wants to preserve this. Yeah. You know, he strikes up these conversations with people on a canal boat and it turns out that this person just happens to have fought in the Battle of Saratoga. And oh, look, they happen to have a a bullet with them in their pocket <laughs> that they, you know, and they just give them this stuff. Um, sometimes it's kind of hard to believe like really but uh but but there's a way in which when he when he starts asking these questions about the olden times of people who he meets that frequently he he meets with the response of like wait a minute you're actually interested in this well let me tell you and then people just kind of unburden themselves and start talking about this it was almost like a not a taboo but it was almost something that people were slightly ashamed or, or felt was devalued you know kind of talking mm-hmm. about This past of 40 or 50 or 60 years ago.
2: So we know that Watson certainly wasn't the only person running around and and collecting pieces of wood from old houses and pieces of clothing and asking people about hair. But why don't you tell us about some of the other people that were doing the same thing? Yeah.
3: So there was a whole network of these local historians that began to emerge in the 1820s and 30s. And they became aware of each other as a of loose community of antiquaries probably the most important antiquary and that's what they call themselves were antiquaries of the 1820s and 30s was a man named christopher columbus baldwin who was the first professional librarian of the american antiquarian society which today for the historians in the audience they will know is probably the most (laughs) important archive for studying the history of 19th century 18th and 19th century america christopher columbus baldwin Uh, took it upon himself to try to collect every single thing printed in North America before the time he was living. In other words, he would hear about some old tavern in Boston that apparently had a full year of the Boston Gazette from the 1760s. And he would go to Boston and go to that tavern keeper and give him money to get that one year of the Boston Gazette that they didn't have in their collection. Um, He has this great account in his diary where he spends a week in Boston in August sweating bullets in an attic, going through all of these papers Part of which included part of Cotton Mather's diary, which he saved from oblivion because it was about to be just thrown out and burned because the person who had lived in the house had died. And he took all that stuff and he rented several carts with, I think it was something like two to 3,000 pounds worth of materials and wow. trucked it all back to Worcester, Massachusetts to be housed in the American Antiquarian Society. So. I think they almost felt themselves to be a bit like the collectors of things that other people would do important work with. And Watson himself says that's exactly what he intends. He's just going to, he's just collecting as much stuff as he can in really no particular order. And other people will then make of it what they will. Hmm. And that's kind of interesting, you know, that that kind of his capacious understanding of what counts as history is something that makes him feel really modern to us, right? That he cares about what people's hair looked like. I don't think he knew why anybody would care. And I don't think he even knew why he was interested in it. He just knew he was curious about it. And, you know, thankfully he was, because now if we want to write about the history of hairstyles or the history of fashion. Uh, like, for example, one of the things he did in his manuscript version of the Annals is that he clipped sections of the dresses that women wore to the Mesquianza uh, in the wow. 1780s in Philadelphia. So,
2: Which was this grand uh, ball, right? It was a big dance, the Mesquianza. Right.
3: This big dance held by British officers uh, stationed in Philadelphia. Um which is an event that a lot of historians have subsequently written about and as this window into the culture of uh, Philadelphia in the 1780s. And a lot of the raw materials that we used to do that were collected by people like John Fanning Watson.
2: So I have a question for you, Seth. So how do these people feel about the past? I mean, are they are they collecting all these things because they're longing for that time and they want to go back to that time?
3: I think that there's an element of that. There's a de- degree of melancholy about this, a sense of loss that can't be made better. Um, but I, th- I think they understood that that past was not coming back. Uh, they understood that their railroad was here and was here to stay. What they're registering is when change happens, it produces both new things that are liberating and wonderful in some ways Yet it also in the process of producing that new, it also destroys things from the past that we also maybe really like uh, and really want. Um, And so, it's a way of kind of naming the the harm that comes with change. Um, mm-hmm. That the ideology of modernization tells you you're not allowed to feel that way. You know, um, we're not allowed to be sad and mournful for um, the days of you know walking between towns uh, or whatever it might be. That that's just silly, devalued nostalgia. Um, but yet there's also pleasure. That this nostalgia always has. It's always a mixture of pleasure and pain.
2: And all the more pleasurable, as you say, because they know they can't have it again.
3: Yeah, there's a kind of bittersweetness to it and a kind of acknowledgement of the pain of change, um, but without this kind of humorless desire to just stop it in its tracks and keep everything the same. Mm ¶¶
2: Seth Kotler is a historian at Willamette University. He's working on a cultural history of nostalgia in early America. It's time to take a
1: short break. When we get back, how we reconstruct the past from the stuff that people save. But first, a word from today's sponsor.
2: Okay, so Ed, Nathan, before the break, we heard about these people in the 1820s, these self-described antiquarians who saved items from the past.
0: Over the past few weeks, we asked our listeners what items and artifacts they collect. Here are some of their responses.
1: I'm Janine Higgins, a collector of bones. Bones are beautiful in their form and for their function. I have black bear and bird bones, bobcat, white-tailed deer, beaver bones, and wolf and jaguar bones. I find these bones on my hikes. I study these bones for my work. I'm a wild animal artist.
0: I collect coins because a coin tells a story, and I like the short stories best, the coins of countries that no longer exist, monarchies or colonies that barely ever existed. I heard the Croat writer Dubrovka Ugresic speak one night, ten years ago, about a Balkan man she knew who'd lived in six countries without ever moving house. Our boundaries and our fortifications and checkpoints and mines scar only the surface. But the metal that we pull from the earth and make into coins keeps telling stories long after a nation and all of its citizens have died. My name is Stuart Lutz and I live in New Jersey. I love buying great pieces of Vietnam War history. I collect both sides, the Vietnamese and the American, the pro-war and the anti-war. I feel like a curator and a preserver of such an important event.
1: My name is Zev Feldman. I've been called the Indiana Jones of jazz or the jazz detective. I wake up every morning on a mission to find the most important jazz recordings that have never been released.
3: A long lost Thelonious Monk studio album from 1959 or never before heard 1968 recordings by Bill Evans. It's a never ending journey. There's a real sense of urgency for me to find and release these important recordings for the sake of generations to come before they're simply lost and not found.
0: That was Janine Higgins, Jeff Waxman, Stuart Lutz, and Zev Feldman. Thanks to all the listeners who reached out.
1: You know, Joanna, and Nathan, I, I have a confession to make. Uh, I spend my life thinking about all these dead people, and I don't have anything that's old or any desire to own anything. I don't even like old stuff. What's wrong with me?
2: <laughs> Wait, now, now, I got I to gotta get specific here. Like, nothing? You don't have a craving to, I don't know, own a book that belonged to someone that you've written about or something like that?
1: Not very much, to be honest. <laughs> Not and, so much. and that's
2: the reason I'm, I'm willing
1: to believe there's something wrong with me. But I, I, when I talk to people who, you know, working the Civil War field, a lot of people have a lot of stuff. Right? There's a right. lot of people with private collections and things. And I always feel somewhat inadequate when I talk to them because they they want me to be excited about this gun or or about this epaulette or whatever. And I and I don't really touch the past through these means. And so, but if we didn't have people like that. The three of us wouldn't have things to write about very much if somebody hadn't gone back and selected these things. So I'm just wondering, you know, what is it about the gene of someone who collects yeah. and what it is of those of us who interpret the record of the past?
2: I mean, what? what well, but we I fit? think even – I think the record of those who interpret the past isn't even one-dimensional in that way, right? I mean I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that I am a collector, but I do know a colleague whose entire house is furnished in <laughs> – Early American furnishings very deliberately. You know, right. I mean that, that right. um, I, I'm not that person, but I do. I am the person who like needs to own something that the person I'm writing about owned hmm. just so that I can sort of have a piece of that yeah. person with me right. while I'm I'm writing, you know. So I, I want something that has meaning. Right. You know, meaning to me. And and maybe that's part of what we're talking about today, right? Is is things invested with meaning right. rather than just things.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, I was reminded of, of the fact that during the Middle Ages, people trafficked in these relics, right? They, this could be the finger of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> this could be, you know, the, the cross, or a piece of the cross that Jesus held. And, and certainly, we, we never go back that far on backstory, but the desire to keep something that has a certain kind of magic, really, from the past is, is not in any way, shape, or form a new thing. I mean, I— in in contrast to to Ed, I actually have a fake artifact that I really, really like. And and I bring it with me everywhere. So so I have in my possession a replica of a colored-only waiting room sign. And I use it in classes. I use it when I go Mm. on the road to give talks. And, you know, I use it because it really does trigger a response from the audience to see an Mm -hmm. object that may well be real, right? And I Mm I don't try to pass it off as being real. I mean, if anybody asks, I'm happy to tell them it's a replica. But it's that kind of of, you know, locked gaze that the mm-hmm. sign gets from the audiences when I, when I pull it out, that really does attest to the fact that for many people, their engagement with the past is material. If they can see something mm-hmm. that's really real from that period, they somehow make, it makes everything that you say <laughs> subsequently much more believable. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's a problem that many historians have where we sometimes think that everything ought to be kind of text based you yep. know, or, yep. or the, mm-hmm. the people's relationship mm-hmm. to the past. It's something about how we write, or if we can kind of present the documents and the footnotes mm-hmm. and it's all mm-hmm. going to be fine. But there's something much, more more visceral, I think um, that, that those images speak to. But I personally am not going to decorate my entire home in mid twentieth century Jim <laughs> Crow era stuff. You know.
1: So you made the point that I was thinking of Nathan of our faith at professional academic historians' faith in the word, um, mm. and wherever those words are is good enough for me. I mean, you know, if they're in, in a book or on a screen. Uh, I've gotten into passionate arguments with people who argue that unless you're actually breathing the dust off a document, you you can't really understand it. So hmm. tell me this. Are you struck more by our similarities to these collectors uh, or by our difference? Are we part of the same family with just different fetishes?
2: I think the the people who we're talking about today have some kind of an emotional sense of the importance of what they're doing. Mm right that's invested mm-hmm. in that stuff and and mm-hmm. i guess i would say as a historian i also have a sense of mission or importance or something that drives me beyond just wanting to play with documents and write things. You know, so I would say, you know, when I first was writing my first book and I came across Plumer, what touched me about him was his gradual realization that history was fading and that someone had to do something or it was going to go away. You know, and he had a sense that there was Mm -hmm. value here and he needed to collect it and pass it on. And I, I don't think that's that far removed from what we do, is it? Well, here's a question for you folks. William Plumer is there finding the
1: documents of the founding of the United States on the floor of the lumber room. We can see how he might think there was something important. But today, after so many generations of people saving and archiving the Library of Congress, I mean, is there any need for this sort of thing anymore?
0: Oh, I mean, it's absolutely imperative. Um, it's one of the the principal tasks facing us now as, you know, we're losing more and more people um, who are part of, you know, really the early part of the 20th century, the right, mid-20th right. century. I mean, there, there are entire eras that um, need to be reclaimed and captured. And I mean, voices. I, and and voices, voices, Absolutely. Yeah. The William Plumers of the world, if you're listening now, right, there there are there are actually, you know, stores of documents that are very right, valuable right, right. that are just mm-hmm. about to be lost to us. And mm-hmm. it's really important that our listeners appreciate that they need to get going <laughs> and saving some of this stuff, right? I mean, just to give you an example. So Zora Neil Hurston, who famously wrote Their Eyes Are Watching God, who was a very important folklorist, you know, of both African American and African diaspora culture, Hurston's career it spans really from the time of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s, really through the mid 20th century. And you know, Hurston as was true. Of many African American artists spent much of her life living kind of hand to mouth, and basically died in near poverty, and was left, you know, in in the care of the state. Her personal papers are in the archive of the University of Florida, the Special Collections, and they have literal burn marks around the edges because they had to be fished out of the flames of the group home that she lived in at the, in the final years of her life, right? Wow. I mean, they were going to destroy letters, drafts of essays, I mean, tons of material just as part of general housekeeping.
2: Nathan, you just became Plumer in the lumber room. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll, 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 I'll wear it proudly. I mean, I think I, think I, I, I share dear Mr. Plumer's sense of, of indignation and urgency, frankly, yes. about needing yes. to save this very, you know, fragile relationship we have with the near past.
2: Yes.
1: We're going to turn now to a much more modern artifact, the Internet. Every day, people leave digital footprints of their lives when they send emails and text, tweet and post articles and upload photos. So while these century Americans such as William Plumer and John Fanning Watson went out of their way to collect personal information, has the Internet solved the problem of historical preservation? We called Jason Scott, an Internet archivist, to find out.
4: Parts of the Internet will by some people's vision, lasts forever, and we'll never get rid of it, and it'll be all of our old dog photos, and it'll be every terrible thing we ever said to somebody. turns out it's just not that.
2: Scott says some digital content does vanish, and we're not just talking about old dog photos. When the Rocky Mountain News folded in 2009, its Pulitzer Prize-nominated digital series disappeared from the web. Scott says this sort of thing happens pretty often.
4: As time goes on, people take down websites, services go down, people change things, newspapers change mm. things. I mean, the the front page of a newspaper website will change constantly all day. Uh, and of course, mm. we'll see all of these cases where people kind of want to take things down either because they're trying to change their message, you know, in terms of uh, you'll have right. a business that supports a candidate and then the candidate does something awful and then surprise, there's no record of that anymore,
2: right? (laughs) Good luck. It's deliberately gone, right?
1: Right. Scott works for a nonprofit called the Internet Archive. It rescues websites and other digital content from the Internet before it gets deleted. He also runs an online volunteer group that saves web pages that might otherwise vanish. The archive maintains an enormous stash of music, books, movies, and software. It also has nearly 300 billion searchable sites in what it calls the Wayback Machine, a fond tribute to Mr. Peabody and Sherman from the old Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon.
2: On this Wayback Machine, you can visit Bob Dole's 1996 campaign site or click around CNN's old O.J. Simpson trial page. Scott says maintaining these old websites is important because unlike old newspapers, these kinds of materials are not sitting around in someone's attic.
4: One of the interesting paradoxes with digital information is how it is so easy to make a copy, but it is also so easy to destroy and lose something forever. Mm. You know, if you defund a library and you take the books and you shove them into a shipping container on someone's backyard and you go back later, I mean, there might be some mold, but you'll probably be able to, like, look through most of the books and be pretty happy. But if a company goes under and they were the, you know, catmemories.com and you, you go in there and you go like, well, how are my cat memories now? And the answer is, oh, those hard drives are off. We sold them. They're gone. There's no record of this anymore. Wow. Wow. And
2: that's just a different world. When did you realize that the internet or that technology wouldn't be permanent?
4: I was doing this sort of thing when I was 11 back in 1981. The reason why was my parents got divorced and I learned very quickly, hey, maybe you can't depend on everything you see existing after you take your eyes off it. So I was printing out things from computer bulletin board systems and early online services and kind of storing them wow. away on floppy disks. And when the internet came along, I was kind of, I bet I can look up all the information on those <laughs> old places I used to call when I was young and there was none. So I put up a website mm. where I put up everything I had. And in doing so, I stumbled backwards into becoming a librarian and historian related to online world. And uh, the work I do with volunteers, a lot of them internalize that message. So you know, Mm -hmm. the minute we see a company has bought another company, suddenly there's this rush of trying to copy everything about the soon disappearing entity before all the other people come along and say, well, we don't need to keep this up and we don't need this old message. And of course, the Internet Archive is doing this very interesting crawl through all of the world of everything all the time because you can't know truly what's going to be important. And so they're right. watching for like anytime someone tweets about a YouTube video or when there's <laughs> news articles being published that are changed and, you know, trying to track those. And, you know, it's just right. random
2: So the randomness is, on the one hand, bad because important things inevitably slip away. But it's also kind of wonderful because you get the texture of things in a way that you probably couldn't do on purpose. Or if you did, you'd have to make that your life project, right? Right. I shall collect the the texture of life in the late 20th or early 21st century.
4: Right. And people are going to be like, they really thought they were important, didn't they?
2: Yeah. (laughs) True.
4: You know— we try not to curate too hard. And does it mean that we're drowning in a uh, uh, Citizen cane like warehouse? The answer is probably. Eh, probably pretty crazy in there. <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly fun to go to a place like the International Museum of Axe Handles, which I've just made up, and have this canonical <laughs> collection of axe handles that has been carefully curated. It's another thing to like – go to a museum of every kind of tool and they don't quite know what everything is in there and you don't even know what half these tools are and some of them are from dentists and some of them are from landscapers. Like, we are really in a good world for serendipitous exploration.
2: Is there something that you saved that had particular meaning for you that you thought, oh, thank heavens, this was saved?
4: In very early internet, we're talking pre-web, there was something called the Internet Underground Music Archive. And this was three guys from Santa Cruz who were musicians who were making their music available online in the form of downloadable audio files. And they turned it into a website when the website came to be. And throughout the 90s, they were kind of a mainstay of music, like especially unsigned bands. And then the dot-com boom happened. They were purchased. And then that company just slowly murdered the website over the course of the next eight years and closed it down in 2009. I was given tapes of that website. And we put it all back up. You know, 450,000 tracks of music from 35,000 bands or something. So it lives again.
2: That's great. Wow. Right. So it's alive again. Yeah. So you're you're doing all of this work, preserving all of this stuff on some kind of technology. So the question is, how do you know that at some point in the future, people will be able to read your technology?
4: Oh, we super don't. We absolutely don't. We are absolutely doing a huge bet. We're hoping that technology and interest and long-term storage, and everything will conflate into a functional, retrievable library. Like, this is a huge hmm. bet. When I summarize history and historians and saving archives, I'm like, you're going, dun, 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 So then in a thousand years, they'll go, dun, dun. And you have no idea if that's going to happen <laughs> at all. But by making everything we're gathering available back as soon as possible, as widely as possible... We're hedging against that bet and we're providing value to the world regardless.
2: So what you're saying is in the same way that you're showing how the past matters by collecting it and you're saving it for the future, but that the present matters too. Jason Scott is an archivist and software curator at the Internet Archive.
0: That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going with us online. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Just go to BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, and we know you do, feel free to review us at the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
1: This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joy Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Courtney Spagna, Robin Blue, and Elizabeth Spage. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music on our show came from Pottington Bear, Ketza, and Jazar. Special thanks to Zach Shelby Sisko at Resonance Records, Emily Yakowitz at Yale University, and to Johns Hopkins University Studio
2: in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, Cultivating Fresh Ideas in the Arts, the Humanities, and the Environment.
3: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.